0: We'll be in Galatians chapter one if you want to make ready your copy of scripture. Galatians chapter one. Um, While you're turning there, question, have you ever had whiplash? Uh, It's pretty rough, um, but it it can vary. And how, like, the degree of severity... Uh, but whiplash can be rough. In fact, um, not to make light, because many of you have probably had way worse whiplash than I have, but the worst whiplash that I've ever had in my life um, was thanks to the happiest place on earth, none other than Disneyland, Um <laughs> our Disney World. I'm sorry. Um, That tells you how much I know about Disney. But a few years ago, a family friend got our family into Disney. And so they came in, like, told us, like, okay, so this is how you want to, like, plan out your day so that you get the most out of it and all this stuff. It was awesome. We were super thankful. um, But we had some time in the midst of our day where there was not a particular ride that we were supposed to do. And um, Leland was quite young at that time, and and he saw the, the race car ride. I don't even know what it's called, but you get to drive the race car and the kids get to drive even at that young of an age so I'm guessing he's three four at most and so he gets to drive and I'm the passenger and I'm looking at the track and like clearly it's like only going to let it go so far like he can actually steer a little but it can only go so far before there's a guide in the middle that's going to keep the car from going off the track and so we take off. Do any of you know this ride? You know this thing is rough. It's awful, like serious whiplash because three-year-olds can't drive and so he's just wham, wham and it's jacking me up bad. Um, But whiplash is more than just something that you experience wrecking a car. Uh, Whiplash might be social. Uh, Maybe like a bait and switch. You know that conversation you have with your spouse where you kind of, it gets set up, sounds positive, like this is good, it's gonna be a great night and then all of a sudden the hammer drops and you're like, whoa, where did this come from? Or maybe it's your boss that you come into work and everything seems great. The conversation starts off nice. And then you realize, oh, they're just setting me up so I can fall from a great height. Like, social whiplash is a thing. Um, that's pretty rough. I don't wanna see if we find it today. Um, but before we jump into where we're actually gonna be today, uh, a quick recap of last week. In Galatians chapter one, the first five verses, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul's saying, like, it's the start of a letter, this is Paul writing, he says, I'm an apostle, and he associates himself, like, exclusively with the gospel. The gospel is what defines me, and so last week we explored gospel identity, that we find who we are in Christ. The gospel informs us more than anything else should of who we are, and so like Paul, we have to hold to that. Um, But we see that that is very personal, and yet it is communal, that in the family of God, Paul writes, hey, I'm an apostle writing with this authority. I know who I am because of the gospel, and yet I'm writing with the brothers. And we're addressing this to the churches of Galatia. And so that is where we're at. Um, And so today we're going to pick up following the greeting. So last week we covered the greeting in this letter, and now we're going to move into more of the body of the letter. And so um, what we're going to see here is um, that Paul actually follows, typically in his letters, a pretty particular structure. And so um, what he typically does is that Paul will go from introducing himself, his audience, and giving some kind of greeting, like grace and peace to you, as he did here. That's very common. But then Paul would almost every time launch into a prayer of thanksgiving. And this is what Paul does. Like He's like, this is who I am, who you are, and praise be to God, and now I'm going to thank God for something. And often... For those of you who love studying, and I hope that's all of you, um, you'll actually find huge clues as to what the big theological theme is going to be in the letter in his prayer at the beginning. And so um, this is what you can kind of expect. Colossians, for instance, another letter that Paul wrote. Um, Paul does his greeting. This is who I am. Here's the greeting. And then he says, We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So we thank God, here's his prayer of thanksgiving. Philippians, intro, and greeting, and then I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, or 1 Corinthians. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way in all speech and all knowledge. So typical Pauline structure, is that he's going to say who he is, who his audience is, give this greeting, and then he launches into some kind of prayer of thanksgiving. And now, let's see what happens in Galatians. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I not trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Did you feel it? We should expect, like, typical Pauline letters. We should expect, this is where Paul says, oh, like, I give thanks to God for something. Like, this is, this is still the happy, like, he's, he's warming us up. And yet here, <clears throat> Paul does not. Paul gives us that kind of so, social whiplash. Like, you feel your head careening back and forth. Like, whoa, that was jarring. Paul's like, hi, my name's Paul. Isn't the gospel beautiful? That's what defines me and it defines you. Don't forget that. Hey, here's both barrels. Calm down, Paul. What is wrong? Paul goes from grace and peace to you to have you guys lost your minds? Have you absolutely lost your minds? I am amazed that you would so quickly turn from him who called you. So let's look at this. Like, why would Paul come out like he's out of the gate? Like, there are no, there's nothing restraining him. Why would he do this? So, verse 6. Verse six and verse seven, it says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Why is he amazed? Because people are turning away from truth. People are turning from truth and there are other people who are trying to distort truth. And isn't this at the heart of our everyday life? Like, from the fall, what was it that convinced us to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? That's the tree of knowledge of good. Like, I can decide truth. I can decide what is right and what is wrong. And the serpent tells me, I'll be like God. I can be like God. I can decide what is right and what is wrong instead of just submitting to what God says is true. Huh, well, that's enticing. And we live it out every day. How much is this our culture, that you be you? Like, I'll decide what is for me, and I'll decide, like, who cares about what nature seems to indicate, or who cares what this old, archaic book says, who cares what my mother taught me, I'll decide for myself. Like, we, human autonomy, like, our individuality is paramount to us, and just Like this, 2,000 years ago, there are people who will turn away from what is absolutely true. And there are people who will step in and try to twist that truth. And Paul's saying, I'm amazed. I am amazed that this is happening. Why would this be happening? Who gets to determine truth? We must be a people for our own good who submit to God and his truth, that God truly is the one who gets to define truth, and it is exclusive truth. We don't get to come in and say, no, 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 like I hear you, but actually this. No, we have no right. We are the clay, and he is the potter. He is forming all things. He is in control. He gets to decide what is true, and we ought to submit to that. So distortions can be subtle. Like, oh, just, you know, we can play with it just a little bit. We'll just twist it just slightly. And yet Paul Paul's saying, like, there are people, like you're turning aside from the true gospel, turning to another gospel. In fact, there's not even another gospel. There's not even another gospel. Like to turn the gospel, to twist the gospel, to distort it is not just a slight shift, it's fatal. It's absolutely fatal to change the doctrine, to change what is absolutely true that God has broken in and revealed from himself. This is what is true. To change that is fatal to us. It's not a minor thing. It has always been such that even when it looks subtle, and you see the church start to drift off from the true gospel, you can just this little tweak here, a little twist there. We'll, just, we'll add this little thing. Oh, we'll, uh, yeah, this, that sounds great. It kind of keeps in mind all this stuff. And we just start to add these things, and, and we see how inevitably the church will just walk off a cliff. It is fatal. John Stott a famous theologian, he once said, these two go together. To tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the, ter- the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers, now as then, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. As Paul warned the Ephesian elders at Milesis. In great tears, they're crying. It's like, this is the last time you'll see me. And one of his warnings in that is, some fierce wolves will rise up among you to try to lead you astray. And that's always convicting to me. And I hope it's convicting to you. Think, what is the greatest danger to beloved church? What is the greatest threat to us? It's not someone who stands outside our parking lot with a sign telling us how hateful we are or making any kind of accusation. It's not even someone who would run in here with an AK-47 and mow us down. The greatest threat to us as a church is us, is within us, for us to distort the gospel. That is terrifying. And this is a huge call. And Paul's saying, this is why. you like, I'm going to break from my normal pattern. I am amazed. Why, Galatians, why would you turn away from him who called you in grace? Why would you do this? There is no other gospel. What gospel do you think you're turning to? If you shift the gospel, you've lost the gospel. If you twist, if you alter the gospel, if you change the gospel, you have lost the gospel. Why would you do this? The key um, to, to seeing like, how this is irrevocably damaging is, is found in the first verse. Grace, or I'm sorry, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. He called you by grace. So Christian, your salvation, it begins with this calling on your part. Uh, if you go to Romans chapter eight, you can actually, it's quite beautiful. Um, Romans chapter eight is called the, the golden chain. And so um, what we see here is that for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And now listen to the sequence. And those he predestined, meaning God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, that's Ephesians 1, those he predestined, he also called. So God selects us, God in his grace is what he's saying in verse six. He called you in grace. You did nothing to deserve it. God calls us, and then he calls us, and then he justifies us. Those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. This is the sequence of events. That God, before we could do anything, says, I love you. You are my beloved. Before we could do anything. And so we are called by grace. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, you're turning away from the one who called you in grace, like, you could do something now to earn salvation? Like, you think you can add something that's necessary for salvation that's to completely go against everything that has been revealed to you, that you were called in grace? And so to turn away from that calling in grace and now tack something on that, now you've gotta do this, you've gotta measure up in this way, or you need to fulfill this, you have to be obedient in this, to add anything else to the simple fact that you were called and now you live a life of obedience out of that calling is to absolutely obliterate the gospel. Because it is a gospel of grace. Galatians, why would you turn away from the one who called you in grace? That is why Paul is so upset. This is critical, this order. To rearrange the order, tacking on a requirement of merit to our calling is to undo the gospel because it's no longer a calling in grace. And then he keeps going in verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. That's really, really strong language. Like, in fact, we we have kind of like, our equivalent is, uh, I won't finish the sentence, but like, you get angry, and somebody is angry with you, and you hear, go to, (laughs) that's essentially what he is saying. Anathema is the Greek here which is a word that is consistently used for an end time final destruction, the curse of hell. Paul is saying, if you're going to twist the gospel, if someone is gonna come in and try to lead you astray, would that they would just go to hell, a curse be on him. What? (laughs) That is harsh. He says, not even if we, he includes himself, if I come preaching a different gospel or an angel, Like if you have a heavenly vision or heavenly revelation that adds something to this gospel, a curse be on him. You know, we we won't jump into all of it, but you know that a lot of the the modern day cults, um, even some that claim to be part of Christian orthodoxy, where do they find their roots and where they shifted from just the gospel? A divine revelation where an angel appears and shares something or tells them where to find something. Things like that. And yet, here we have the undisputed word of God throughout Christian history. This is the very word of God. And it plainly says, even if a heavenly vision or angel were to tell you otherwise, no, 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 no. Don't believe it. A curse be on him. And not only that, do you see how it kind of starts at one level and then progresses outward? Like So if someone... If there's a source, there's a source that starts to twist or distort the gospel, a curse beyond them, and then it becomes much broader. If anyone, anyone now in verse 9 is preaching a different gospel. It spreads, so not even just the person that it starts with, but if anyone adopts this false gospel, a curse beyond them. Like This is heavy stuff. This is why I dressed up today. This is heavy. This is hard stuff. Like This is insane, but it's necessary. And how can Paul say such a thing? Again, because apart from the true gospel, what is the destination already? Hell, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what are the wages or consequence of sin? Death. It is a physical death, but it's also a spiritual death, a separation from God forever. And the essence of hell, as Romans 1-3 through 3 shows in this just downward spiral of depravity, is God saying, have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way. You don't want me? Look at where this ends. An eternal suffering. The fire of hell. And we'll, one day we'll jump into like, how much of that is metaphor or not. We don't know, but it seems quite clear. Jesus referenced hell a lot. It is very real. It is eternal suffering where God in his grace is no longer there to stay the hand of evil. Have it your way. To abandon the gospel is actually to abandon Christ. Like we, we need to, as followers of Christ, feel how personal that is, that verse six, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. When you turn to a different gospel, it is not just, oh, I'll just change my belief set. Or I'll alter, or I'll distort my belief set. It's actually to turn away from God himself, the one who calls us in grace. I was saying, Don't do this, Galatians. I don't want to plead with you, beloved. Don't listen. There are so many voices trying to lead you astray. Don't listen to it. Stay true to the gospel. Stay true to the one who called you. The gospel is personal. You cannot separate out the gospel from God himself. He is at the center of it. He is our salvation. So to turn away from the gospel is turning away from God himself. And like to see the severity of this, to understand why Paul would be so emphatic about this. like just, it's, it's almost offensive the way he's saying this. I mean, it should be read that way. Why would he be so high strung about this? We see the severity of this. Like, eternal life is at stake here. Like We care about people here and now. We want to engage in acts of justice and mercy. God is constantly throughout the scriptures calling us to step into our calling. Like Act like sons and daughters of God care about people that are hurting and in need. We should be about good works. They give glory to our Father in heaven as the world sees us do them. He prepared them in advance for us to walk in. That's why we were saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith. Nothing we could do, but now why did he do that? So we could walk in these good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in. They're not even our good works. They're his. He prepared them. But we get to walk in obedience to them. But that's here and now, but it is for the sake of all of eternity because we are supposed to be showing the world that there's a greater light, the light of the world. We just, we're reflecting this. Jesus is the true light. He is life. He is truth. We point the world to him. We're gonna take this gospel to all the nations. Why? Because it's not just here now. It's for all of eternity that every soul will live on. We will all be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to eternal condemnation. And so if we can actually accept that reality, which is so unpopular, we don't like to talk about that in our culture. We like to to make it fanciful and talk about silly things like, oh, heaven gained another angel. No, I want to make that clear. When your loved one dies, they do not become an angel. They're human, which is beautiful, made in the image of God. And God resurrects us So to be in heaven is not to become an angel. It's to be human. But to be with the Lord, which is beautiful, for all of eternity, that Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh in the great incarnation, the advent of Christ coming to this world, he lived a sinless life, died the death that you and I deserve, and then he rose again. And what did he raise again as? Still in human form. Fully God, glorified Ultimately, as he ascended back to the Father, and yet, he still has a human body and will. That we will look at Jesus. I that is beautiful. So let's not diminish the value of our body. Think that this is not worth anything. Take care of it. Delight in it. As your Father made you. But eternity is at stake here. Eternity is at stake for a human body to experience everlasting suffering, pain, hurt, or everlasting bliss and joy, delight to be in the presence of God. That is what is at stake here. But it's also now, too. That Jesus came and said, I've come that you would have life in abundance. I've come that your joy would be made complete. That is, here and now, the salvation that we have is not just this forward looking, like, oh, one day God will resurrect me and I'll live with him in f- heaven forever. No, it's, yes, that's true, but it's also here and now. Like, you get to walk with God every day. You get to wake up to the presence of God and his delight over you, his spirit, sealing our hearts with this promise for the day. Today, it is sealed. That God's presence, he dwells within us. We, the church, the body of Christ, we are the temple of God. Like, he is with us. We can enjoy him even now. In the midst of all of the crazy circumstances of life, we can find joy and delight in Him today. So you've got to see, that is what is at stake when you twist the gospel the intimate enjoyment of God. And so, verse 10, Paul says, For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul ties this personal aim of his, like what he's trying to do. I'm trying to please God. I'm striving to serve God, not people. Well, that's silly. If I just wanted to please people, I, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Why, why is he saying, like why would he all of a sudden go to like, okay, make this really personal for you, Paul. Okay, like <laughs> chill out, man. Because obviously he just said something really hard. And so like in this room, saying such things, you gotta know some people are probably not feeling too happy about this. Some people don't like to hear about uh, eternal condemnation. Did he say hell on stage? Like, oh, are we allowed to talk about that? Like, he knows this is a hard teaching. It's like, look, I get it. But I'm not just out here trying to tickle your ears. I want you to know the truth. Because I want to please God. I'm striving to serve God not men so this is what he's saying this is personal his personal aim goes back to the personal god who saved him and is offering salvation to the world this is deeply personal and paul knows he knows how we can be pleasing to god it goes back to that calling right it's a calling in grace so how can paul please god the same way that we can please god by grace That he has given me his righteousness and taken away my shame, my condemnation. I am pleasing to God. I am delightful to God because he has made me pleasing and delightful. If you were a follower of Christ, you know that is true of you. You are pleasing in his sight. He delights in you. And why? Because he made you such. It was grace. You didn't earn this. We don't deserve this. But in love for us, he gives it freely freely to us, but at the expense of the life of a son of God because of his love for us. Like that is amazing. That is incredible. And so Paul knows we are pleasing to God only by grace. So why would we ever abandon that grace? Why would you turn to another gospel if the beauty is that you now are a son, a daughter of God? The king of kings calls you friend because of grace. Grace you didn't deserve to come into this standing, then why would you ever leave that standing to try to find it on your own? This is what's at stake, and this is deeply personal to Paul. He's willing to say the hard things because he is convinced of the truth, and he is passionate about it. There's no shame holding him back. Um, Someone earlier asked if this was a clip-on tie. Uh, Actually, it's not. Thank you. (laughs) I tied this tie, Uh, and back, uh, it's been a few months now, the last wedding that I officiated. Uh, We get through the wedding, we go to the reception, know, reception's fun party, like all the stuff going on and everything, people are dancing, and I look up and there's this guy that I like, I somewhat know who he is, like I could call him by name and stuff, but I don't know him really personally. Um, But he's walking around and he's kind of like, doing like, dad dance on the floor and stuff, and snap his fingers, just kind of a little move, And, and so he's moving around, but he turns towards me and I realize like, his shirt's undone, and he has a clip-on tie, and that clip-on tie is now right there in his pocket, hanging right there. I was like, wow, (laughs) like that's incredible. This guy has no shame in his game. (laughs) Like usually, I would think that if if I was wearing a clip-on tie, I would do my absolute best to not let anyone know that's a clip-on tie. This guy, like, you know what? Just clip that clip-on tie on my pocket so that it's off my neck. (laughs) I don't care, I'll keep doing my dad dance. Like, there is no shame at all. And this is Paul. I'm not scared to tell you what is true. I know what is true. And why would we compromise on the truth? Don't turn to a different gospel. There are no other gospels. If you change the gospel, you've lost the gospel. See what's at stake here. So, our culture does not like this idea. This idea of exclusive truth. This exclusivism is deeply offensive to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through him. Jesus' own words. He said there is no other way. It is only by Jesus. As Peter preaches, he says, there's no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. Only Jesus. The only way to salvation is Jesus. The world around us does not like to hear that. The world around us has embraced this idea of pluralism. They're like, "Oh, well, like you'll find your way, I'll find my way, he'll find his way, she'll find her way." Like there's so many different ways leading to God. That is not what God has told us. Does God not have the rightful place to say, "This is the way"? It cost me my son's life. The eternal son of God died to make a way. He has every right to say, "This is the way." There is no other way. And now we have the privilege to say we know the way. World, the way is Jesus. There's his gospel and no other gospel. So church, you have been entrusted with this gospel and tasked to take it to all nations. So when we shift from that gospel, when we distort it, when we start to steer away from it, then we have to call each other back and say, no, 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 no. There is no other gospel. It is just this gospel, the gospel of grace, what Christ has done for us. We cannot lose sight of that. We cannot let go of that. It is the only way. And it is the most loving and inclusive thing we could actually do. The gospel is exclusive, yes, and that there are no other ways, but it is so beautifully inclusive that God is so missional and so loves the world that he says, I'm gonna send you out as my ambassadors. Go let the world know this is the way and I'm inviting you in. So go and share this good news. Oh, goodness. (laughs) But we still today even encounter these false gospels. And just what are some of the common false gospels today? Like what are the ones that creep into our own lives and our own church and around us in the culture? Um, They're much the same as they were in Galatia, actually. We may not be screaming for each other to be circumcised. We'll get into a lot of that. But in the same way, we'll add on like, ah, but you, you gotta do this though. You gotta prove your salvation by this and all these different things, and will you do good works? Yes, we already discussed that. He prepared them for us. But that is not our salvation. Our salvation does not hinge on what we do. And so don't fall for that, the, the works-based or the, the one that I hear so often. Just be a good person. You know, that's what life is about. Be a good person. Like, well, how, do you, how do you know that you're good enough? In fact, like, Scripture makes it painfully clear that we are not good, None of us are good. We could never do enough. That's nonsense. That's a false gospel. We could not be good enough. And if good works got us to God, then how insanely offensive that Jesus would have to die. And so, what a mockery we make of the crucifixion, of the life of the Son of God, his death, if we think that we could in some way be good enough. No, we could not. And this would disqualify all of us because let's be honest, we're all bad people. We don't even keep the standards that we impose on our friends, let alone the standard of God who is holy. And so we must not turn to any gospel other than the one true gospel, the gospel of Christ. It is Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. There's nothing more. And, and I don't want you to miss this either. Um, in a wrongful paradigm, like to think this workspace, like I-, I do this and do this, or I be good enough, or anything like that. If you tack on anything to the gospel, anything that now is your responsibility, what have you done? Well, we talked about this last week. Who gets all the glory in the gospel? God, because it's grace that he did it all for us. But when I step into a place where too? well, I have to do this. I'm gonna do this and everything. And I somehow tack that onto the gospel that now I have in some way done something to earn my standing. And now who gets the glory? At best, it's shared. The glory all belongs to God. Salvation is the Lord's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a, I've not. I don't. I'm too cheap to buy the data, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but I'm hearing secondhand about all this data that's being released right now. Um, kind of preliminary data. It's still early. You know, COVID is spiking again. and All this stuff. Um, but some of the post-COVID church data that's coming out right now says that, in general, in general again, one third of the church, and we're speaking across America's landscape, one third of the church is more bought in than ever. More bought in than ever. It will, like, every pastor in March of 2020 was terrified, thinking, like, this is gonna financially ruin us. <laughs> My family's not going to be eating, and all this stuff. And it was true here, too. But churches across America were like, you know what, actually, this didn't affect finances much at all. Like, the, the effect on finances has been small. And what we saw was fewer people are giving, and yet those that are giving have stepped up. Said, this is for real. I'm I'm going to own this. I'm a part of this. And to the glory of God, I'll even sacrificially give. And I say, praise God. And personally, thank you that we can eat. (laughs) So one third of the church is more bought in than ever. Serving on more teams, doing more for the church, just owning it better than ever. And then there's one third of the church that's more on the fence than ever. One third of the church is kind of like one foot in and out of the door, like, Uh, if it goes goes sideways, like, I'm out, it's all you. And then there's another third of the church that has just left, which is tragic. So you've got one third, more bottom than ever, one third, more on the fence than ever, and one third that's just like, no, we're done. Uh, But the most troubling thing that I've heard of all of this data is that, particularly those who have already left, People have left churches, and even those who have left one church and gone to another church, do you know what the number one driving factor is? Preference and position. What's the position that this church is going to take on this social issue? What's the position that this church is going to say? Uh, Like, all these things, like, what political leaning does this church have? Or what style of of social justice engagement do they kind of carry? Like, all these different things. Like, are those things important? Sure, yes. They are important. But to choose what church you're going to be part of with no regard for the gospel that's being preached, that is tragic. That is Galatia. That is what is happening. To let the gospel slip from paramount and let other things be tacked on and added in, that is crazy. It leads to death. To alter the gospel, to change the gospel is to lose the gospel. We cannot lose the gospel. And this is the beauty. Like, that's kind of the negative side of the shadow side, but the beauty in that is, again, like we talked about this last week, if the gospel is central, This good news, the gospel of grace, if it is central and we hold to that, then it will actually bind us together more than ever. And we'll be able to say like, yeah, we have differences of opinions on politics or how to respond to vaccines or mask mandates or whatever it is, all of the calamity of the last year and a half. We can have differences of opinions and still in love say, that's okay. This is what matters is the gospel. And so even if it makes me a little uncomfortable, I'll love you. I'll put the mask on. I'll, I'll say yes to, to helping in another position, whatever it is. And, and I don't want anyone to do anything out of guilt, but I'm just saying, if the gospel is really paramount, then the silly things that will divide us, like, oh, uh, this, I'm, I don't feel like I quite fit there. You know how many times I've heard that over the last year and a half, or two and a half years now of planting this church? I'm struggling to connect. I said, that's beautiful. Like if that's you right now, I wanna say that is beautiful because there are other people struggling to connect. And so if you'll just step in, press in a little, you'll probably find those people. And then more and more people would feel like they connect. And you can actually trace this historically, this is not in my notes, here we go. But <laughs> you can trace this historically with, with the, the development of suburbs. If you look at church history, when suburbs became a thing, um, the automobile allowing for all this much longer distances, commutes and everything. When suburbs came about, the suburbs became highly targetable. I mean, like, they became really niche markets of like, oh, this kind of person lives here. And so that's when we saw these big box stores start to pop up and, like, so many different things in consumerism came about because of suburbs. And churches did the exact same thing. Like there, You can take classes on how to effectively plant churches and it's all about find your target demographic and cater to them. And it works. But let's not be that church. Let's be a church that doesn't know the gospel is what we live for. The gospel is what we die for. We are created and we are sustained by the gospel and so we can be incredibly diverse and come together in love for God and each other and hold to this gospel. So let it be what brings us together and unites us, not divides us. And I just pastorally want to conclude with asking, what is the best defense against false gospels? How do we best defend the true gospel? And it's pretty simple. It's not me standing here and decrying false teachers. Uh, Some people really like that. Like, I wish you'd just like really take a stand on things. Like, call them out when they're evil and they're saying, like, there's a time and a place for that. But you know what's so much more effective? than decrying the bad stuff. It's just exalting in the good. If you want to know the true gospel and be able to defend it, to contend for the faith, then have clarity on the gospel. Meditate on it daily. See it as glorious as it is. See the one true gospel passed down from the apostles like Paul. Paul. That has been preserved for us. They received it directly from Christ and has been preserved in his scriptures for us. Be in the Word of God every day. Let that be your filter, the lens through which you see the world. Just immerse yourself in the gospel all the time. Uh, people that handle fine art or jewelry or even money a lot. Currency. You know, after a while, they're really good at determining what's counterfeit. You know why? because they handle it so much, that you learn to see this is the way it feels, or the way it looks in this kind of light, or the way that that brush stroke should have gone with a real artist. So you study it, you immerse yourself in it, and when you live and breathe this every day, then when something that's not it comes in, you immediately know, nah, that's not it, that's fake. So do this, see the glory of it. John Calvin said, so glorious is this redemption that it should ravish us with wonder. Father, would you help us? Let us be a people who can hold to truth, um, to proclaim your truth and not waver from that God, but to do so in a loving and wise way um, that engages redemptively as you have come to us in grace. Let us also be people of grace. Let us be such to the world around us, but also to each other, to love each other deeply. God, thank you that your gospel has been preserved for us so that we can know the truth of how we have right standing with you. It is not by anything that we do, God, but entirely by what you have done. Thank you. God, I love you. And we trust you and pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.